2: Have you ever met someone who overcame self-doubt and turned their challenges into opportunities? Building mental strength is a lot like building physical strength. You need good habits. According to today's guest, Amy Morin, when you give up the things that are holding you back, you can accomplish incredible feats. Amy is here today to discuss strategies women can use in order to exercise mental and emotional strength. Amy is a licensed clinical social worker and psychotherapist. She is the author of the national bestseller, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, as well as 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do. Her TEDx talk, The Secret of Becoming Mentally Strong, is one of the most viewed talks of all time. Amy serves as a parenting expert for VeryWell, and she's a regular contributor to Forbes, Inc., and Psychology Today. Amy is the author of the new book, 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do, Own Your Power, Your Power channel your confidence, and find your authentic voice for a life of meaning and joy. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So, Amy, women are finding the confidence and the courage to speak out on critical issues today. You wrote a book, 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do. How do you define a mentally strong woman?
3: So, uh, mental strength is all about being able to think in a way that's realistically so that you're not overconfident, but you're also not... with self-doubt. It's about knowing how to manage your emotions so that you can use your anger to, to fuel you to create change or that when you're sad, you can take steps to boost your mood. And it's about knowing how to take positive action so that when no matter what kind of circumstances you face, you know that you can take a step to either make your life or somebody else's life a little bit better.
2: So your work is around helping people become mentally strong. How did you get started on this journey?
3: So I started as a psychotherapist and I thought, okay, I'm going to start my my work based on everything I'd learned in college and things that I'd learned in these textbooks and uh, was excited to teach other people how to be mentally strong, but I didn't realize how much I was going to need it in my own life. And shortly after my career began, my mother passed away suddenly from a brain aneurysm And it really set me on this path to study mentally strong people, uh, not just to help people in my office, but also to help myself. I wanted to know how come some people went through struggles and they they came out on the other side stronger versus why did some people seem to just get stuck in life? And uh, a few years after my mother passed away, it was three years to the day, in fact, that my 26-year-old husband died of a heart attack. And... Again, at that point, I knew, all right, it wasn't always about what people did, sometimes it was more about what they didn't do. And I had learned that sometimes it just takes one or two bad habits to keep people stuck. And so it set me on this path to identify what are the bad habits that keep people stuck. And few years later, my father-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer and I wrote my list. It was a letter to myself of the 13 things mentally strong people don't do because I needed a reminder, don't do these things if you want to stay strong. And then I published my letter online, hoping it might help somebody else, and it went viral. Fifteen million people read it, and it changed the course of my career. Ever since then, I've been writing and speaking about mental strength and how to give up the bad habits that we all engage in sometimes so that we can make all of our good habits much more effective. You know, everything
2: that you just described, your your life is is very similar to mine. Ten years ago, in a period of six months, my 23-year marriage ended, my mother died, and then six months later, my sister died. On top of that, one of my best friends passed away from a brain tumor, shed brain cancer. And this was in such a short period of, of my life. And so many people have said to me over the the course of the past 10 years you're so brave you're so strong how did you do this and and i've always been fascinated because i have no idea i know any one of those things could knock someone really you know down for for quite a long period of time and i survived all of them you know at one time so i'm interested in learning more about this conversation because i've always wondered what was it that enabled me to move forward and do this work from that not only did i survive i thrived and my life changed so this is really a, a fascinating conversation that i'm excited about
3: right i just you know sorry that you went through all of that as well and i think it's one of those things sometimes you don't know how strong you are until you have to be mm-hmm. and and then when you get through it and you kind of look back and you think well how did i do it how how come i'm not you know stuck in a in a self-pity how come i'm not uh, somebody who ended up feeling like the world's a terrible horrible place i'm not bitter and angry and i bet you could identify plenty of things that you didn't do that other people who who do get stuck tend to engage in and I saw it in my therapy office on a regular basis. People who just did one or two small things, sometimes it was about identifying, hey, just don't do that anymore. And I promise you, then all of those other good things you're doing will be much more effective. Can we talk about a
2: few of these things that are not the best practices if you want to be mentally strong? What are some of the things we should avoid doing?
3: So I guess one of them would be a big one is to not see vulnerability as a weakness. And for women in particular, sometimes we tend to think that we need to put on our game face at all times and and to try to look like we're tough. And there's a big difference between being strong and being tough. Being tough Mm -hmm. is about trying to appear as though you don't have any problems, that pain doesn't bother you and that no matter what, you're going to keep going, whereas being strong sometimes means asking for help. It means admitting you don't have all the answers. It's about really connecting with people and saying to somebody, my feelings are hurt, or I'm sorry, or uh, here's something I'm struggling with. And it takes a lot of strength and courage to be able to do that. But it's key to getting the social support to reaching out to people who can help you and to know that you don't have to go it alone.
2: I know one of the things, and this is on your list, one, one of the things I had done early on and especially social media makes it so easy to do, is I would compare my life where I was with the life of others by scrolling through social media. And and so, for example, after my mom passed away on Mother's Day, you talk about being, Mm -hmm. you know, to torture yourself. I would go on social media and I would look at all the wonderful Mother's Day celebrations that my friends were having. And if you get into the practice of doing those types of things that I call self-torture, I could see how that could be a behavior that would keep you stuck.
3: Yes, and it really is a form of self-torture. And yet, sometimes we try to convince ourselves that we're gaining inspiration from it. So uh, take Instagram, for instance. There's plenty of studies that show Instagram can be really bad for your mental health. And I'm not against social media at all. I use social media, but it's important to be aware of how it affects you. Because we know that for a lot of women, they're scrolling through social media and they're looking at fitness models. They're looking at images of people who appear to have their life all put together and that everything's perfect. And when you constantly uh, fill your mind with all these thoughts that other people are happier, healthier, wealthier, and they're doing better in life, it can easily make you feel bad about yourself. And there was a fascinating study that found that men, when they look at images of other men who uh, tend to be doing better, sometimes they gain inspiration. They think, oh, I could be like that someday. But women, when we look at those images, we tend to think, oh, I'll never be as good as she is. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important to just take a look at how much time you spend doing that, how your thoughts are probably irrational. You don't know how somebody else's life really is. You tell yourself a story about those people that you see. But too, if it starts to affect the way that you think, if it's affecting the way that you feel, you really need to scale back on on comparing yourself to other people.
2: So the example that you just used, That leads me to my next question, because you wrote this book now about mentally strong women, and you've written a book about mentally strong people. Are there differences between the things that men and women do and how it impacts mental health?
3: Well, you know, when I wrote the first book, I was just thinking about everybody in general. And then, of course, since that book came out in 2014, lots of things have happened uh, in terms of the Me Too movement and things like that. But I really wanted to know when it comes to women in particular, how does sort of the societal pressures affect us a little bit differently? And right down to the studies about the way that we raise girls a little bit differently than we do boys, really subtle, small things that we do, but that are giving girls the message that boys are better. There's one study that I found particularly disturbing. When we look at five-year-old kids and we ask them to pick out who they think is brilliant out of the photo lineup, most kids pick out somebody with their own gender. Girls pick out women, boys pick out men. When we do that same study when they're seven, almost all the kids identify men as brilliant. And so I think it's so important just to look at the subtle messages that we give to girls and how do we change, change that so that they don't grow up thinking that they're not as good or that they don't measure up and so that they can have healthy self-worth. So
2: we're talking about the way that we view things, how we think about things, perceive them, messages we may have had, habits. Are there other things that factoring whether or not a person is mentally strong and able to move through challenges?
3: Absolutely. And part of it's genetics, which we can't control. You can't help it if you say we're born with um, ADHD, something like that. It's a biological condition. It's often genetic. And and part of it has to do with mental illness as well. There's a big difference between mental strength and mental illness. Sometimes people think that they're... um, somehow related. If you have depression or anxiety, it means you're not mentally strong, but that's not true. It's just a complicating factor. Just like mm-hmm. if I wanted to go to the gym and become physically strong, I could still have a physical illness, maybe like diabetes, and that might complicate it, but it doesn't mean I can't still have big muscles. And and, and then, of course, our life experiences, the way you were raised, the messages that you got, the core beliefs that you developed as a kid, we hold on to those Straight through adulthood so it's important to really look at all right how did I learn what did I learn about myself what did I what kind of beliefs do I have about other people or about the world in general so unless there's something physical
2: going on this is really something we have a lot of power over how we move through challenges how we create that strength that lets us live an empowered life we have control over a great deal of this don't we
3: Absolutely. It's all about the choices that you make. You know, nobody's born mentally strong. It's all about the choices that you make every day. Do you choose to practice gratitude? Do you choose to calm down when you're upset? You choose to have tough conversations, even though it's scary. It's all about all the choices that you make. And do you then figure out how do I become a little bit stronger today than I was yesterday? And choosing to grow, absolutely anybody can develop more mental strength. And no matter how mentally strong you are, I guarantee there's room for improvement.
2: And I wanted to drive that point home, Amy, because so many people feel like they're a victim to a circumstance or they're a victim to something that's occurring in their life. And they don't have to be because I I know in my life, when I went through all of my challenges and I was in a really dark place, for me, I like to describe it as making a choice. Now, it wasn't a flip-the-switch type of choice. One day I'm sad, the next day it, everything's great. But I made the choice that I wasn't going to go in the direction of the darkness. And I was going to figure out a way to to empower myself. And at that point, probably, I used the word survive. So I think it does come down to a choice. And and I think, like you're saying, we have so much more power then we really do believe that we do.
3: Yes. And I talk a lot about that self-pity and the a victim mentality and that sort of a thing because it's different than being sad, being sad, being angry, those sorts of things can be part of the healing process. But it's different when you start to host a pity party and you think the whole world is against me, nobody can solve my problems, all of these solutions that that are out there won't work for me, and my life is terrible, horrible, and awful. Because when you start believing that, you stay stuck. Because why would you bother to do anything different if you think the world is a terrible, horrible, and awful place? So it's really about then taking action, knowing, okay, I can do something. Maybe you can't change the whole world or you can't change something that already happened, but you can still choose to do something to make your life, somebody else's life a little bit better. Can you share a
2: story from your book that illustrates mental strength?
3: Oh, sure. Gosh, there's so many. I think one of my favorites, if I had to pick, would be the story of Catherine Switzer. She was a, a woman who had decided to run the Boston Marathon and it was in the late 60s or early 70s, back before women were allowed to run marathons. And back then, which wasn't that long ago, there was a belief that women just couldn't run that far. And, but she signed up for the marathon. And when she signed up, nobody told her she couldn't sign up. She used her initials, so they may not have known she was a woman. Mm-hmm. But anyway, she showed up to the race and just began running with all of these men. And the officials tried to physically knock her off the course, told her she couldn't do it. And um, and she finished. ended up finishing the race. She got tons of hate mail afterward, even from other women, who said, what are you trying to prove? Why are you doing this? But I think she's a great example of somebody who didn't necessarily ask permission. She just went out there and showed people. She didn't try to convince them, yes, women can run a marathon. Here's Here's why. Here's why you should let me run. She just signed up and did it. And one of the things I talk about in my book is about how uh, how important it is sometimes to break the rules. And it's something that a lot of us women were taught to be polite, to be rule followers. And sometimes you have to break the rules to create change. And I'm not talking about um, just breaking laws haphazardly, but sometimes it's about knowing what are the gender norms that we follow? What are the stereotypes that we end up getting caught up in ourselves that perpetuate the unhealthy stereotypes? How can we do things a little bit differently to create positive change. And, of course, we know now it would be ridiculous to think women can't run marathons. Women do it all the time. But she was a trailblazer. She was a pioneer who said, I'm just going to go do this and show that women absolutely can run 26 miles. If you could
2: offer someone one tip that could help them develop self-confidence, what would it be?
3: I think it's about um, embracing a little bit of self-doubt because a lot of people think, oh, if I'm a little bit doubtful, I shouldn't try this. Or if I'm not 100% confident, I have no business being here. We look around at other people and think, gosh, they all look really confident. They know what they're doing. I'm the only one who doesn't. But the truth is we all have a little bit of self-doubt. Even if people look like they're 100% confident, they probably aren't. And knowing that self-doubt can can actually improve your performance. When we do studies on people and we say, how are you going to do on this test? People that say, I'm going to ace it tend to actually perform worse than people who say, I'm not really sure if I'm going to pass the test or not. People who have a little bit of self-doubt tend to study harder. So it's one of the things to know that self-doubt isn't a bad thing. Just embrace it and use it to fuel you to do better and to know that sometimes you just have to act brave to then feel brave. So just get out there and do it. The best way to build confidence is through practice and action, not just sitting on the couch wishing you felt more confident.
2: The book is 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do, Own Your Power, Channel Your Confidence, and Find Your Authentic Voice for a Life of Meaning and Joy. If you'd like to get more information about Amy and her work, you can visit com. Amy, in our final moments, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with?
3: I'd say to just get out there and know that you can face your fears, you can feel more confidence, you can... Do lots of things to make sure that you reach your greatest potential, but that it only takes one or two bad habits to hold you back and counteract all the good work that you're doing. So I'd say work on identifying what's your worst habit and then put your energy into eliminating that from your life and then your other habits become much more effective Amy, thank you so
2: much for joining us and for providing insight that can help us become mentally strong. There are challenges that we face on a daily basis, and we certainly can use all the strength we can create. So thank you for spending time with us. Thanks so much for having me. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to primohealthsolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best.
2: Soul by Rain is produced from various seed flowers. Its primary ingredients hail from the black cumin seed and the black raspberry seed. These two combine to provide a powerful antioxidant barrier against the devastating effects of stress. Soul by Rain has been hailed as one of the most important anti aging antioxidants ever discovered. Soul is an anti inflammatory and it helps prevent and repair radical damages for a healthier heart. Get your soul by calling your rain partner, Elmina Ziza at 973-722-1154.
4: Calm, vitality, mindfulness. We all want them, but they seem so hard to attain. Escape the stress and frenzy of the city streets. New York Open Center offers courses, trainings, and a vibrant community
2: to help you start your journey for a more balanced and healthy life. Visit our website at opencenter.org for more information. Stop by our cafe and bookstore for all your wellness needs. Find your center at 30th and Madison.
5: Does
1: your child snore or breathe with their mouth hanging open at night? Are they restless or just don't get a good night's sleep? Children that don't sleep well will have other troubles like slowed physical growth, behavioral issues at home or at school, and changes in their facial appearance, including crooked teeth. At the Center for Integrative Orthodontics, we treat the reasons that crooked teeth happen. People bring their children to us as young as three from all over the East Coast. To learn more, go to morethanstraightteeth.com.
2: to live a happy, productive life. But sometimes we just need a little help. Our coach on-call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Harriet Cabelli, a social worker and positive psychology coach who helps people grow through their challenges and rebuild their lives with renewed meaning and joy. Harriet is here today to discuss developing a growth mindset. Welcome, Harriet. Thanks for joining us.
6: Hi, Jones. great to be on your show.
2: Harriet, we hear a lot of talk today about the fixed and growth mindset. Explain the differences between them.
6: So, uh, okay, let me just start off by saying that the person really who we have to credit towards this whole idea of a growth mindset and bringing us into this world of what this is is um, a psychologist out of Stanford University, and her name is Carol Dweck. And she has done many, many studies and has basically brought brought this idea of a growth mindset into the mainstream so let me explain a little bit the fixed mindset is what we've all been raised on when we were in kindergarten and we and our parents took us for those IQ tests and then it became almost like engraved in stone ah this is their intelligence this is their IQ this is it for life in a nutshell that's what the fixed mindset is it's a belief that our basic abilities are fixed are set and fixed, and that there's not real work on developing further because this is what it is. As they say, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. The growth mindset is kind of the opposite. It says it, it, it's based on the belief that learning and our abilities, they grow. They grow with time. They grow with practice. They grow with experience. It's kind of like combining a talent and hard work. You know, they'll say that, that um, Beethoven, it just wasn't, or all of these famous artists and musicians didn't just, yes, they obviously have innate talent, but it took hard work and practice. And what's the, the magic number that they say is 10,000 hours of hard work and practice to really excel and get somewhere. Now, we're not all endowed with a talent, a specific talent, but we can all build and grow our abilities. And there's a new word that's, that's sometimes attached to it. And we say, oh, I haven't learned it yet. Mm-hmm. I haven't gotten there yet. And that yet, even though it's one word, is very powerful because it's not limiting. It's expansive. So that's basically the difference between the two. The fixed mindset will say, eh, I'm either good at it or I'm not. You know, when I'm frustrated, I, I just kind of give up. The growth mindset will say, Challenges will help me to grow. I can learn to do something better than when, than what I was doing. In other words, there's always that ability to improve. I may personally never be great at technology. That's not my forte. But each time I learn a new piece, I'm better at it. It mm-hmm. doesn't mean I'm going to be the whiz, but I'm better than I was last week. That's and basically wish, the difference.
2: Well, and I wish everyone understood this because... Oftentimes, I mean, I know growing up, kids were labeled a certain way, or we tend to, like you said, believe that there are things we can never accomplish because we're not that type of person. So by having more of a growth mindset, how can that enhance our lives and help us live better?
6: It, it's a wonderful question, and it's so powerful because again, if we buy into this idea of a growth mindset, which I think is is all the proof is there to 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 see the 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 richness of it, we will open ourselves up to more possibilities and new opportunities. We'll take more risks, we won't be afraid to fail. We'll welcome criticism to improve because we'll say it's not just oh that's that's the way I am I can't mm-hmm. help it you know that attitude of well I can't help it that's how I was born this is just mm-hmm. me right. it's the antithesis of that attitude it's saying I can do better and I can learn from my failure and I can get back up and I do like to try new things because what's the worst that's gonna happen I won't be great at it okay so I won't be great at it but then the world opens up to us in terms of possibility and, and then when we do fail or we, do, or we don't get that interview, we don't go home and put our covers over our head and say, that's it, I'm done. There's no easy giving up when you aspire to that growth mindset. It's okay. I, I, I didn't get that one. I failed. I didn't get it. I'm going to try again. What do I need to do to make it happen or to get a little bit closer in other words, the failures don't set me back. Or they may set me back, but they don't keep me back. Right. The failures are a learning tool. What can I do differently next time? It's an opportunity to grow and to learn. And challenges will help me grow. And feedback, even though I may not like it, may hurt my ego. But if I want to improve, that's the only way to do it. So, And, and, and there's a lot around the character strengths of persistence and stick-to-itiveness and that we we emphasize effort it's not only about the outcome but it's about the process in terms of the growth mindset i'm putting in all this effort and i'm proud of myself for it and then you know what'll be will be but i feel good that i'm actually doing it and trying and that says a lot that will keep us you know to keep going that'll keep us on, on track to keep going as opposed to giving up. And when we keep going, we know what happens. Eventually, we do well.
2: Harriet, thank you so much for being here. I am such a firm believer in the growth mindset. And and as you said, it, it does give us endless possibilities in life. If you would like to learn more about Harriet and her work, if you would like to learn more about this topic, you can visit Harriet's website, rebuildlifenow.com. And as always, to hear more from Harriet, you can visit our website, dot slash Harriet. We'll be right back.
7: Did you know that the practice of grounding and connecting to earth energy can be instrumental for optimal mental and physical health? Hi, I'm Donna Sicconi, an integrative psychotherapist. Grounding, or earthing, is the practice of putting the body in direct contact with grass, soil, or sand, which are conductors of electrical energy. It is necessary for us to absorb the earth's electrical charge in order for the cells in our body to communicate and our nervous system to send signals to the brain. This process controls the rhythm of our heartbeat and regulates our circadian rhythm so we sleep Well, our nervous system is actually built according to an electrical system design. It is believed that in our industrialized society, we have lost our connection to the earth's electrical energy. One of the ways we block that energy is by wearing rubber or plastic sold shoes, which are non-conductive sources of electricity. Earthing has been shown to reduce cortisol, which helps control inflammation in the body. And research shows that inflammation is an underlying factor in all disease and debilitating conditions. Here's how you can ground yourself indoors in just a few minutes if you can't plant your bare feet on the earth outside firmly place your feet on the floor and imagine thick tree roots growing from the bottom of your feet all the way down into the center of the earth while placing your awareness on the bottom of your feet grounding not only supports physical health it can help keep us positive and focused on being mindful and present it has been shown to decrease anxiety worry and fear reduce aches and pains and contribute to an overall sense of well-being so go outside and get grounded to learn more connect with me at donna
2: this is joan herman i am honored to be a special ambassador for the 2019 coleman north jersey race for the cure i hope that you'll join me and my race team on sunday may 5th at liberty state park for this 5k fun walk and 5k timed run sign up for my team at cyacyl.com slash that's cyacyl.com slash join the fight save lives register now
1: Less than 2% of America's population volunteers to defend our nation. Though we rarely see them, we live the benefits of these heroes' sacrifices and the freedom we know and the safety we feel. Each and every day, the Gary Sinise Foundation serves our nation by honoring our defenders, veterans, first responders, and their families. We do this by creating and supporting unique programs designed to entertain, educate, inspire, strengthen, and build communities. The Gary Sinise Foundation has grown because the need has never been greater. Together, we'll improve the lives of thousands of American heroes and their families day in, day out, all year long. While we can never do enough to show our gratitude to our nation's defenders, our veterans, our first responders, and the families who stand by them, we can always do a little more. Join us. Visit Foundation.org. This is WN inside New Jersey, New York City.
2: Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. If you're like me and so many others who have suffered the loss of a loved one, a question that may be on your mind when you think of the person is, where did you go? And we wonder if there's any hope of connecting with our loved ones after they've passed on. Today's guest, Christina Rasmussen, says that it's possible to reconnect with a lost loved one and that we all have the ability to do so. She delves into quantum physics and brain science to illuminate some of our most pressing spiritual Questions. Christina is an internationally recognized grief educator and author of Second Firsts, her work has appeared on major media outlets such as NPR and ABC News and has been featured as a woman working to do good in the White House blog. She is the author of the new book, Where Did You Go? A Life-Changing Journey to Connect with Those we have Lost. Welcome, Christina. Thank you so much for joining
4: us. Yeah, I'm so good to be here with you as well.
2: So, Christina, before we get into the topic of your new book, I want to talk a little bit about you and your work. You help people cope and rebuild their lives after loss. And that's really the result of a tragic event that occurred in your life. So what was it that happened that changed the course
4: of your life? Joan, you know, we have one, you know, vision for our life. And and it turns out so differently sometimes, as you know very well. Um, In 2006, my then 35-year-old husband passed away from... um, stage four colon cancer. Uh, At the time when he was diagnosed, we had a a nine-month-old baby girl and a -a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. And um, it was the most devastating day of my life. I remember I couldn't even breathe. I was throwing up. Um, He fought this battle for about three and a half years and then he passed. And that that day, um, everything changed. Like My life before that day was destroyed. The person I was, who I was, and by the way, for everyone listening, I used to study grief, I, I did my thesis, my master's thesis on the stages of bereavement. When I experienced grief myself at, that, at this tragic level, everything I've ever um, learned and everything I was ever taught just could not even help me, even for one breath. It took me about I would say about four years of grief, of really grieving. Um, And then I quit my my corporate job and started a little blog in 2010 called Second First. And I started to write and everything changed. I had
2: something similar happen to me in 2010 in a period of six months. My mother died and my sister died and my 23-year marriage ended. And I had already lost my father and brother. So I understand when you talk about Having one vision for your life, and then in a blink of an eye, <laughs> everything changes. And I'm uh, Christina. I'm doing this work because of that. I started this yeah. work about change your attitude, change your life to to process and move through all of that pain. So when you're in that space between the loss and your future, what do you yeah. advise people do to get out of that to to leave yeah. the waiting room, so to speak, and begin living again?
4: And Joanne, I just want to say um, you know ending a marriage divorce is actually a, I call it an invisible loss and for everyone who's listening who's been through um, a tragedy that is not the death of someone but the death of a marriage the death of a relationship I just want to validate date and acknowledge everyone who's listening that is actually a much more complex and dare I say longer harder experience because there is so much complexity so a lot of people who have gone through divorce um, or death get stuck. We, we are exiting this old life. We're actually thrown out. We are kicked out of our old life. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we don't get a say. And then we we think we are starting this new chapter. But we're not even positioned in a new life. We're in that waiting room place where the world says, you know, give it time. Mm-hmm. And then we go and wait. And what the brain does in that moment in time, John, is it takes that time And it defaults itself into a repetitive pattern of just surviving. And it gets used to living in that survival state that it never exits the waiting room it never finds the new life. So my advice, try to go against that brain and start to exit the waiting room with um, known scary things. So we don't activate the fear center that I call the survivor self, Um, because the more we activate the fear center, the survivor self, the part of us that tells us to be afraid, it will do anything it can to convince us to stay in the waiting room to keep us safe. Because ultimately, the comfort of just surviving is much better than the discomfort of being bold and, and taking a leap out of the waiting room.
2: To get out of there, you know, what I did is is I literally used that pain as a catalyst to finding a passion. I decided, you know, I knew I could go in one direction, and that direction may have even been suicide at the end of that because I was so broken and so low, and I knew if I went left, it could have been the end, and I had children, and, I, you know, that really wasn't an option, but if I went right... I said, I can take all of this and figure out something good to come out of this. Maybe just help someone else not feel the way that I did. Yeah. And that was my motivation. Yeah. And do you agree that we can use this pain as a catalyst?
4: We can, Joanne. And, and here's the the hard part about this. You and I were able to do this, and there are some people who have done it. But what I've discovered is that the, the masses, the, the, the Big population of the world is not able, um, and I don't. I think that they don't see themselves as someone who can help others. They don't see themselves as someone who can find a passion, and and turn this painful experience into something beautiful. And our goal, and your your mission, my mission, and people like us is to convince every single person that's listening that. You can take your experience and change and make it to something make it something different. And I agree with you wholeheartedly.
2: So Christina, your new book, Where Did You Go? For me, it's it's such a fascinating topic because when I lost my mother and my sister and you know, the times when I sit and I long for my father or my brother or just anyone who's who's crossed over you know, I, I always ask that question, I do. Where did you go? I think, you know, you've been you were someone that was such an integral part of my life and there was such a deep love and, and I believe in God and I have a very strong faith. But you can't help but wonder, where is that person? Is this it? Will I ever see you again? And and I think so many people are searching for those types of answers. And and your work, to me, it it seems like you've taken a more scientific approach. And, and that's really the way my brain works. While I'm faithful, yes. as I said, I am also analytical and I like to have a, a an understanding of something. So let's talk a little bit about your new book and your work. How do you describe what happens after a person dies?
4: And, and also, John, I want to say thank you for... I'm also, uh, I believe in God and I'm glad you said it. But when, when my, my husband died... I think the shock of, you know, one moment, as you know, they're here with their whole personalities and everything, and then they're not. Right. And they're not just not a little bit. They're not at all. (laughs) It's like they're gone somewhere. They're gone somewhere else. And as the years went by, that was the one question that stayed. And so I walked into the world of quantum physics, and I walked into the world of math and science and John. I discovered so much about our reality and what it's made of and what it is and what it isn't. And, and the very first thing I want to start by saying is someone, a well-known physicist said, when we die, we die in someone else's reality and not in ours. And I want everyone to just listen just to that statement and just sit with it. They died, but only in, in, in our existence, in our reality. In their reality, they continued. They just left their bodies behind They. Their consciousness, their beingness went on to a different type of existence, and and there's a lot of uh, information out there to prove that, Um, and I just want to start by saying that when we die, um, we go outside of this dimension, and this dimension is based on time and space and location, and then linear causality, cause and effect, when we pass. We are no longer in this dimension, but we are everywhere. Else. And we are in the place where we came from, which is, um, which is a high level of consciousness, which is in a place without time. When you are in a place without time, you can visit the past, the present, the future. You can be in your old life, in your new life, in your future life, and you can also be multiple versions of yourself and your life. This is how crazy this sounds, and this is what scientists now believe and know.
2: What? has been your personal experience once you figured all of this out and, and you yeah. started to understand this science what has been your experience in communicating with someone that you've
4: lost? Um, you, I created um, a process. I took all of the facts and things that I've learned in my research and literally uh, created a step-by-step experience to see if I could access the consciousness of the person I've lost. If you let, if we let go of our senses, if we kind of sh- try to shut down and let go of this reality, we actually have access to uh, the dimension outside of here, and we can connect. What if we are supposed to continue that connection? And what if um, grief is not grief, grief is love? That transcends time and space. Because the one thing that continues after someone we love dies is the love for them. Mm-hmm. And the, the love for them doesn't go away when their body's not here.
2: Christina, how has this process changed your personal relationship with death?
4: I'm not afraid of death. I feel like I know more about it now than I ever did before. I feel that death is not this dark, scary place that everyone kind of makes it out to be. It is a higher level of consciousness. It is blissful. One of the main things that people talk about when they go through the process, the temple journey in the book, that's what I call it, is the the—is how they feel. Very joyful, very happy. calm and peace. And it is the most extraordinary experience. But I do believe we need to know and understand what this reality is made of. Because when we do, we actually live our lives from a different place. When we do, we exit the waiting room. When we do, we, we have less fear about how to reinvent ourselves. And we see this life as an extraordinary adventure. It's a very different way of living.
2: Uh, Christina, what you described the the joyful consciousness, I mean that to yes. me sounds like what we've been taught heaven to be. So have you been yes. able to connect your religious upbringing and your faith with mm-hmm. what you've learned through science?
4: What a good question. Yes. I actually feel like i've I've proved to myself that heaven is for real. I'm actually even more more a believer than I was ever before. The light is coming from that place. I, I don't want anyone to change their beliefs and their faith. I actually want you to know that this is even, uh, your faith could be even strengthened from understanding that there is an intelligence behind math, behind how the universe is made of, the numbers, the formulas, the, the vibrations, the music, the sounds, the energy, the atoms, the particles. John, it is a beautiful world out there. It really is.
2: The book is Where Did You Go? A Life-Changing Journey to Connect with Those We've Lost. If you'd like to get more information about this topic, if you'd like to learn about Christina's process, you can visit Christina's website, ChristinaRasmussen.com. Christina, thank you so much for joining us. As I said in the beginning, I think this is such a fascinating topic. As someone who has gone through tremendous loss and, and has lived for years experiencing grief, I think by educating ourselves on different schools of thought, that's where we get empowered. So I, I really do think that this is, um, it's just such a great topic for someone to do some research on. So thank you for joining us.
4: Thank you so much for having me, Joan. I really enjoy our conversation.
2: This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
8: Energetic patterns are everywhere, in homes, workplaces, supermarkets, and even places of worship. What most people do not know is that these energetic patterns can affect our lives on a spiritual, physical, mental, and emotional level. For example, if you are generally a happy, healthy, and positive person, the energy released from you would be a higher vibration. On the other hand, if you are an unhealthy, unhappy, or negative person, the energy released from you would be of a lower, dense vibration. Imagine what type of energetic patterns are released from couples when a divorce is in the mix. If one of the couples remains in the home after the divorce, those energetic patterns are embedded in their surroundings, including the walls, furniture, and even the bed that both of you slept on. If one of the couples moves out, the furnishings they take with them are still carrying the energetic patterns from the divorce. When a divorce is at hand, the best way to move forward in your personal environment is to have your space cleared professionally with the intention of healing on all levels. Space clearing will remove old stagnant vibration energy and replace it with a new revival. Vitalized energy, creating the feeling of a clean, fresh start. Remember, this is your space and your time. Your space should reflect who you are and your goals in life. Starting your life over can be a cathartic experience. Embrace the moment and make it count. This is Roxanne D'Angelo, a certified and intuitive feng shui and space clearing consultant. If you'd like more information, you can visit me on the web at crystalclearenergies.com.
5: How are thermograms different? Hi, I'm Lisa Mack certified clinical thermographer and founder of Lisa's Thermography and Wellness. Mammograms look at anatomical changes in the breast as they detect lumps, masses in the breast tissue. On the other hand, thermograms look at vascular changes in the breast as they detect blood flow patterns, inflammation and symmetries. Thermograms can benefit all women. They may be particularly useful for young women who want to monitor their breast health before the recommended age of 40. Actually, your breast disease prevention should start as early as possible. Proper breast self-exams, physical exams, and now thermography together provide you with a valuable tool for breast health. The first session provides the baseline of your thermal signature. The second session, usually three to six months later, is a comparative study to analyze any changes you have made. From there, annual thermograms allow you to map changes in your body's heat patterns over time. They can alert you to any deviations from your norm. Mapping your health annually helps you detect changes, often Before disease develops, it is important to state, for legal purposes, that thermography is not a standalone device, does not replace a mammogram, and should not be considered diagnostic. Yet, breast imaging is only one benefit of thermogram. Another area that can be beneficial to both sexes is pain analysis.
2: To your health. Joining us today to talk about chronic kidney disease is Dr. Deborah Clegg, who is affiliated with Cedar Sinai, UCLA, and American University. Dr. Clegg is the lead study investigator on plant based diets in people with chronic kidney disease. Welcome, Dr. Clegg. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Doctor, with so many diets and eating plans that are available today, It's difficult to know which is the best to follow for maximum health, but for those with chronic kidney disease, making the right diet choice is critical. Before we talk about that, first tell us about chronic kidney disease. What is it?
9: chronic kidney disease is basically a, a gradual loss of kidney function. Your kidneys are responsible for maintaining normal balance within our body, and as the kidneys lose their function, toxins can stay in the body, and this is associated with some different types of disease risks. Who is most at risk? People who have high blood pressure or people who have diabetes or cardiovascular disease are individuals who those types of diseases can actually impact the kidneys and cause the kidney function to decrease.
7: Doctor,
2: what are the signs and symptoms? How does chronic kidney disease usually present?
9: Chronic kidney disease often presents with some nausea or vomiting, maybe some changes in appetite or maybe even changes in urination. Oftentimes these are associated with kidneys who are no longer functioning properly by getting rid of some of the toxins that are so critical for the kidneys to normally function or release our body from.
2: Why are potassium levels so critical for those who live with chronic kidney disease?
9: What's interesting is that potassium is this incredible nutrient that we need to have in our diet. It comes from fruits and vegetables but when potassium gets too high in our blood is a condition called hyperkalemia and one of the interesting things is that the kidneys are responsible for maintaining potassium balance. One of the benefits of eating a fresh fruit and vegetable diet is that it's actually high in potassium. However, as your kidneys start to lose their function, avoiding potassium can be really important to avoid the potential deleterious effects of hyperkalemia.
2: Doctor, is there anything that we can do to prevent kidney disease?
9: Some of the things that we can do is make sure that our blood pressure is well controlled, avoid some of the salt within our diet, so we're avoiding some of the the hypertension, also maintaining our normal blood sugar by avoiding diabetes and also keeping our overall cardiovascular uh, function and check. Also eating a fresh fruit and vegetable diet actually can protect the kidneys.
2: What types of tests should our doctor be doing to make sure that our kidneys are functioning properly?
9: Your doctor will make sure that your kidneys are functioning properly by taking blood tests as well as monitoring your urine for different types of, of products. So keeping in close contact with your physician if you happen to be an individual that has hypertension, diabetes or cardiovascular disease or even a family history of chronic kidney disease. It's really important to keep in touch with your physician so they can monitor your kidney function.
2: If someone is diagnosed with a kidney issue, what would the normal treatment process be? What can that person
9: expect? Typically, what happens as your kidneys continue to, to decrease their function or when you have CKD is oftentimes physicians will prescribe medications such as uh, blood pressure stabilizing medications, um, other types of medications to keep your blood sugar in check. Uh, typically, they, they focus on blood pressure as well as blood sugar maintenance and in preserving the remaining kidney function.
2: Once we're diagnosed and we're put on medications, is there ever a chance that it can be reversed or are we on those meds for the rest of our life? Oftentimes
9: you're on those medications for, for some period of time but it's not a life sentence because keeping preservation of your kidney function is really what's at stake here. So what we're hoping is that the newer products that are available on the market will actually preserve kidney function as well as allow people to eat a really healthy diet. What are some of those newer products? Right, so there's a couple of newer products that are actually call, uh, considered to be binders. What they do is they sort of take over the kidney function. So when you're eating a diet that's high in potassium and the normal function of the kidney is to get rid of that potassium but if the kidney continues to fail, therefore the kidney no longer has the ability to get rid of that potassium but these newer binders actually bind to the dietary potassium and help you achieve normal potassium homeostasis within your body. It's a really amazing time for individuals with CKD to be able to put potentially try these new products and see if they can liberalize their diet. Thank you so much
2: for joining us and for providing this important information. Thank you so much. That's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Conversations with Joan, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided are the opinions of our guests and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, CYACYL.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital messages, magazine, take part in the book club, check out our team, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in.
0: The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC